This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for August 4th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on this week's show, ancient DNA researchers and ancestry giant 23andMe join forces to uncover present-day ties to a cemetery in Catoctin Furnace, Maryland, where enslaved people were buried. We're excited to welcome contributing producers and hosts of the Dope Labs podcast, Titi Shodia and Zakia Watley, who spoke with two of the authors about the historical significance of this work and how it may help some African-American communities recover some of their lost genealogy. After that, we have a conversation with staff writer Rodrigo Perez Ortega about Philadelphia's famous Mütter Museum. He talks to producer Kevin McLean about his recent story on the ethics of showcasing the various medical curiosities that the museum is known for. Just a reminder, we have a special segment from the hosts and producers of the Dope Labs podcast. We're so happy to have them here talking about a paper published this week in Science. I'm Zakia Watley. And I'm Titi Shodia. And together we host Dope Labs Podcast, which explores the intersection of science and pop culture. And today we're looking at some science that happened in the state of Maryland. Yes, and Maryland is my home state, so I'm really excited about this work. This work is focused on the Catoctin Furnace. So the Catoctin Furnace sits at the base of the Catoctin Mountains in central Maryland, and it feels really weird to be talking about this because I used to drive past this area so often visiting you. Right, when you were living in Pennsylvania. Yes, and so I would pass this area, and who knew there was such rich history there and that science would kind of, you know, tie into helping fill out what we know about the history of this area. And the history that you're talking about is that in the late 18th and 19th centuries, there was 271 enslaved and an unknown number of free African-Americans that were working at Catoctin Furnace. The Catoctin Furnace is an iron-working facility. So the furnace was built in 1774, and by 1776, it was used to make ammunition. Right. And it was really interesting because they also supplied munitions to combatants for the Revolutionary War. And beyond cannonballs, this furnace supplied iron that was used in households as America developed. The Catoctin Furnace was initially operated by enslaved African-Americans, and eventually, the furnace and its grounds were operated by both enslaved and free African Americans. As time went on, though, the furnace shifted to employing white workers, and the enslaved African Americans were kind of forgotten. 
Back in 1979, there was a new highway construction in the same area as the Catoctin Furnace and the nearby burial grounds. So stewardship of the recovered remains was handed over to the Smithsonian and they started the forensic research. Normally, if you were looking at remains or wanting to do any kind of genetic study of remains, you would ask the family if you could have permission. But the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society hasn't been able to make much progress with identifying descendants. And so that's what makes this work really important because they've been able to answer some questions that the Historical Society and the greater Catoctin Furnace community had. Who were these people? Who are their descendants? Are they still in Maryland? Did they move to other areas? This work combines anthropology, history, genetics, and genomics together in this really nice package that I think is just amazing. We spoke with two scientists from the study to get a better understanding about how this work came to be, the ways science and history can serve each other, and how that impacts our current understanding of the lives of people whose stories have been erased from the history books. We spoke with corresponding author David Reich, who gave us some insight on the impacts of this research. The first question we had was how the Catoctin Furnace became the focal point of this research. We got the chance to get involved with the team from the Smithsonian and the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society that had been working for a really long time on trying to restore memory and knowledge about the people who labored at Catoctin Furnace, to try to understand the lives of the people who lived there, which included an African, African-American workforce, an enslaved and sometimes free workforce. We spoke with the first author of the paper, Aideen Harney, about some of the major goals of this work with the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society. Catoctin Furnace Historical Society has done, you know, so much work digging into the kind of legacy of the Catoctin individuals. And they just really couldn't find anyone in the local community that had a, a like a family history that traced back to enslaved African-Americans. And so, you know, their questions that they came into this with is, is that because descendants of the Catoctin individuals just didn't stay in the area? Maybe, you know, as slavery ended, were they sold to other areas like down to the South? Did they gain their freedom and decide they wanted to go elsewhere? Or is it that they actually did stay in the area, but just the family knowledge of that history was lost to time? There was also a push from the local community to know more about the identities of the enslaved people who lived and worked at the Catoctin Furnace and, if possible, their descendants. This type of research is the first of its kind in historical genetics. Aideen explained to us how the folks at 23andMe helped bring historical information to the present. So our lab sequenced the genomes of 27 of the Catoctin individuals. 22 of them had really well-preserved ancient DNA. So that's what we're focusing on mostly for this study. We were able to tell things like how the Catoctin individuals were related to one another and also provide very broad estimates of their ancestry. So how much of their ancestry was African or European or even Indigenous American. But that's kind of when we hit a wall. We weren't able to then take the next step and connect to living people because in order to do that, you have to have you know a really massive database that's going to potentially have people who are closely related. And that's when 23andMe got involved. And this is where this project takes a turn into being cutting edge. They're linking genetic tools to the contextualized information from the 23andMe dataset to find the missing links between Catoctin Furnace individuals and potential descendants today. We are webbing two very powerful developments of the last decade. One is direct-to-consumer ancestry companies, which have created these massive databases and statistical method 
frameworks for finding these these close relatives from DNA that some of whom you didn't know about. This whole study is done on just over 9.2 million consenting 23andMe research participants. So these are people who have opted in to participate in research. And they've provided information about things like where they were born down to the state or county or even city level, where their grandparents were born. The second development that's being webbed together is our ability to sequence really old DNA. Think one-million-year-old mammoths or Neanderthals from tens of thousands of years ago. The ancient DNA revolution, which is also a very dramatic development for the last decade, has made it possible to reliably extract DNA at a genome scale of extremely high quality from human remains. And this study is the first to put those two technologies together. With this new way of combining technologies, they were able to see patterns of where these specific people came from. One of the big aims of this study was to try to localize the African ancestry of the Kataptian individuals. And that's something that can be really difficult, especially when you're trying to localize the African ancestry of present-day African-Americans because they've experienced so much admixture. You know, their African ancestors may have come from all over the continent and then mixed together. And so there really isn't one true origin within Africa for many present-day African-American people. Their team finds that the Catoctin individuals have a connection to Africa that's localized to specific regions. We can see that the people at Catoctin Furnace were not connected equally to all parts of Africa. It was a non-random distribution from that. There was a lot of people whose relatives were only in Senegal and Gambia area, a lot of some people whose relatives were only in the Angola area, and not a lot in between. So what you're seeing is people who were the first generation People brought across the Atlantic or the second generation, and we're seeing where they came from. And once you start diving deeper into the history of specific communities, you can define those patterns more and more. What's really interesting is that we see these connections to Angola and Gambia. When I talked to Aideen, she said at first glance, these findings of genetic linkage don't line up with the patterns of the larger Chesapeake Bay area. But if you look closer, they are consistent with historical records seen at the Maryland level of incoming slave ships. We're seeing a blending of history and science to help us understand more about these individuals and their descendants. They identified 2,975 close relatives of the Catoctin individuals. That means that 2,975 people shared at least 30 centimorgans of identical by descent DNA with the Catoctin individuals. But what is a centimorgan for real? A centimorgan is like a unit of measuring DNA. So you can say one centimorgan is roughly about one million base pairs. So the 30 centimorgans of identical by descent DNA between the Catoctin individuals and their close relatives means that they're sharing 30 million base pairs. And when you consider 30 million base pairs in the context of the human genome, that's about 1%. Like many in the Maryland community were wondering, there was a strong Maryland link with the descendants of the furnace. The research found that one of the highest concentrations of those close relatives is in the Maryland area. And that suggests that some of the Catoctin descendants remained in the area even after it was closed. If we zoom out a little more, this study also found over 41,000 genetic relatives with the Catoctin individuals in the 23andMe database. There's all sorts of applications in terms of being able to learn about economic patterns, social patterns, based on this type of analysis. 
you can ask the questions like, for a particular community, where did their descendants end up getting distributed? And you know, how does that differ or not differ from what's recorded? Because you know, the written histories are often biased stories. This is such a powerful tool to look at our past. I think it's easy to hear ancient DNA and, you know, think back thousands of years. But there's so much to learn in the timescale of just hundreds of years and even decades, too. So much information has been lost to history. And here we're seeing science informing history. But there's also plenty of instances of where history can inform or at least confirm scientific findings and even present new hypotheses. Aideen explains how they formed a new hypothesis after not identifying genetic fathers or grandparents among the remains of the Catoctin individuals. One thing that you could interpret from that is that family groups may have not actually been kept together at Catoctin Furnace. And, you know, that's something that is well known within, you know, the history of enslavement in the United States, that family groups were broken up. Although there is some suggestion that within iron furnaces, they did actually try to keep family groups together more than in agricultural settings. So that was, you know, one thing to kind of consider. Maybe we're not seeing these family groups. But the alternative hypothesis that Elizabeth Comer from the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society discovered is that these burials were actually conducted by Moravian ministers. And uh, within Moravian burial customs, they would actually bury people in what they call burial choirs. And so you would have women and children buried together and you would have adult men buried separately. So it is also possible because the entire cemetery wasn't excavated that we just haven't excavated the part of the cemetery that contains fathers and maybe even people with more distant relationships. I love this because it shows that it's not a one way relationship between history and science. Yes. So in this case, where science had a gap, they didn't see genetic fathers or genetic grandparents. The historical record added some additional context to help them understand why or at least give them some possibilities. So all of this just makes me think about all the information and identity that's been lost over time in the African-American community. And this work can start to give back what was stolen. Okay, so this was used for tracing genealogy for African-Americans in a specific location. Now imagine using this tool more broadly. What will change the way we think about the world is the discoveries of patterns that you can see in these people's DNA. This is a tool applied for for the first time in African-Americans, but for other communities too, you could compare to something like the 23andMe dataset and see, I don't know, where does this Japanese-American community or South Asian community, you know, how are their relatives distributed? So technically, it's really exciting to be able to sort of use this type of methodology. One can imagine doing something that would be actually systematically and sociologically meaningful that could really contribute to learning more about the formation of the African-American community in its early stages when people's heritages were intentionally being taken away from them. People lost their languages intentionally. They were separated from their children intentionally and so on. So this is a way of, of learning about the patterns by which that occurred and connecting people back to ancestors and origins. With all that we've learned so far, what's next? What are the next steps to keep advancing? My hope is that eventually direct-to-consumer ancestry testing companies will be able to tell people who are curious about their, their history, not just who else in their database they're related to, but who else in the ancient DNA record they're related to. In 23andMe, 4.25% of all African Americans are close relatives of one of the people buried at Catoctin. And it's much, much lower for, for white people. It's only a quarter of a percent. 
So there's a moderately good chance, about one in 25, that random African-American person is going to actually be connected to this one site. If we study 25 sites like this, and that data is available, a person doing testing will start with a good chance seeing relatives amongst the historical DNA. And there's a real person here. There's a photograph of where they were buried. I can learn a little bit about the history of this place. And this is a person who lived in 1760 at a time when it's very hard to trace back your ancestors. I think that that's part of reclaiming history agency in communities that often aren't able to track that very easily. This combining of technologies is the first, but we know it won't be the last of its kind. It's so important for these untold and erased stories to be brought to light because it helps our understanding of the lives of these people and dignify the lives of these people. Thank you to Dr. David Wright and Dr. Aideen Harney for taking the time to talk to us about this. I really recommend that you check out their paper, The Genetic Legacy of African Americans from Catoctin Furnace. I can't wait to see what's next. Thanks again to Titi and Zakia. If you have a chance, you should check out Dope Labs podcast. They've covered genealogy and so many other stories at the intersection of science and pop culture. And stay tuned for our conversation with Rodrigo Perez Ortega about the Mütter Museum's controversial collections. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. The Mütter Museum in Philadelphia is known for its vast collections of truly unique medical specimens. A tumor removed from Grover Cleveland's mouth, hyper-realistic wax molds of smallpox infections, and the largest human skeleton in North America are among the thousands of items on display. But like many museums, the Mütter has faced scrutiny over how some items were obtained and whether they can ethically be displayed prompting its new director to call for a full review of its entire collection. And now that review is receiving criticism of its own. Here with the story is staff writer Rodrigo Perez Ortega. Welcome back to the podcast, Rodrigo. Hi, Kevin. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for being back. Great. So just to start off, can you explain a little bit more about what the Mütter Museum is and how it started? Sure. So the Mütter Museum... It's part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. It has a long history. So it uh, started in the 19th century with a donation from, from Thomas Dent Mütter, a Philadelphia surgeon who operated on hundreds of patients with unusual anatomy. And now, you know, it's a whole collection of more than 35,000 objects, everything from vaccination kits to uh, surgery instruments specimens in, in jars, in liquids, what they call wet specimens, wax models, and of course, skeletons of people, because back then, these doctors who a lot of times 
if they saw a patient with an unusual anatomy, like a deformity, a tumor, or something that was weird, they offered to operate on them in exchange to, to keep that body part for educational purposes. And that was the whole intention of the museum and the collection when it started, to have this collection so to educate other physicians and other students. And somewhere in the last century, around the 80s, it was opened up to the public and it very quickly gathered this fandom of people who were fascinated by these specimens, you know. But the whole purpose and mission of the college and the museum is to display this variation of the human body with an educational purpose. Yeah, and so the museum is sometimes described as a museum of oddities, as you're sort of getting at. And I think it's easy to forget now that we have so much information at our disposal that some of these specimens, they've been an important record to train physicians, and some of them even still have that importance, right? Yes, exactly. I think the whole mission of the college, education, and really display, you know, how the human body can have so many variations. As one researcher put it, Molly Zuckerman, who is a bioarchaeologist, she specializes in kind of like the scars that syphilis leaves on the body. I don't know if you've seen it, but I didn't know this, but you know, these infections leave like marks on, on the skeleton on the, along the skin, right? And she told me, you know, the Mirror Museum has all these wax models of what syphilis looks like, and they're very realistic. They made these wax models to show physicians at the time what it looked like. And nowadays, syphilis is, is rare, you know, it's still there, there are outbreaks, but physicians in school now, as a student, they don't learn what it looks like. Right. It would, in most cases, get treated before you would get to the stage of the scars. Yes. And uh, physicians don't know how to recognize it. So they, they either don't diagnose it or misdiagnose it. And it's important to have this record uh, where you can go and even the public can go and see what it looks like. And I think that the key here is that all these specimens have to be contextualized. And I think that's one of the, the realization nowadays from the leadership that perhaps some of these specimens are not properly contextualized. Yeah, you wrote about some examples of specimens that are displayed as spectacles rather than as medical records. One of the most famous specimens is this mega column, right? This ginormous brown column it's uh, 4.2 meters. Uh, it's giant, and there's a lot of pictures, and there's even, uh, you can buy a plush toy of it in the museum store. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So this, this was a man, 20-year-old man, who performed as, uh, at a freak show, and he was named Balloon Man, you know, in Philadelphia. And then he died in 1892 of constipation. The proper name is Hirschsprung's disease, you know. Mm-hmm which causes the, the, the column to really, really uh, get big. This body part is preserved and is on display there. And, you know, one researcher told me right now as, a, uh, as it is displayed, it's kind of like a circus, you know, like, oh, look at this object and how like weird it is, you know, when it, it really should be a witness of the suffering of this patient. So it's just in the way of how you display things, how you contextualize them. By all means, the Mutter Museum is not alone. A lot of museums that, that handle human remains, not all of them have them on display, right? But I think there's been a reckoning of just having respect for these remains, for their cultures, and how also to start thinking 
how they were obtained and if they were, were obtained in an unethical way, what to do with them, right? So at the time, a lot of these, uh, you know, for historical reasons, especially in the U.S., all these doctors were used to, you know, claim bodies that were like family didn't claim them. And most often these bodies were of black people, of poor people, vulnerable and marginalized people. That's those, those bodies are now on display. And there was never at the time any discussion of consent, whether these people in their life consented to donate their bodies to science, let alone to be on display in a museum, right? But there are also very recent donations, you know, people who who are fascinated by the meter, they have a connection to it and they wanted to donate their body parts. There was one patient who had acromegaly, which is a condition, a hormone condition, and it basically causes his heart to get very big. Uh, so he had a heart transplant and he decided to donate his heart, his enlarged heart, to the meter museum to be on display, to not only serve as a, an occasion material for for physicians, but also the public, right? And that he gave full consent to be on display. So it's just like a case-by-case case basis. And of course, this is a large collection of more than 6,000 specimens of human remains, right? So it, it's it's tough what to do. Yeah. I mean, so what's going on with this ethical review that they're they're doing? How did that whole process start? Why are they reviewing all of their collections? There's many things happening. So the museum got a new director, Kate Queen, last year. And um, among many things, she decided it was healthy to have a review of the collection. It also happens that they got a new space. So they're going to, you know, work on basically re re renew it and make it updated because there's also a lot of things on storage. But this ethical review started with the online content. So back in, in the last weeks of January, the, the museum decided to take down all the videos from the YouTube channel because there was about 400 or more videos of, you know, of the museum and also online images. That was just a review of like, do these videos or images show human remains? And if they do, what to do with them? So, for example, there was a video where staff jokingly were brushing the teeth of a skull. And today that might not be appropriate or ethical, you know, just out of respect of these human remains. Or they were drinking the liquid from wet specimens, you know, again, as a joke. But, you know, that's not appropriate for a museum, right? So it's just a review of that. But, you know, museum members who are very passionate about this museum noticed and suddenly they were very confused about this. Yeah, there have been some vocal opponents to this whole review process and advocates for the value of the collections. And I know that there's, you know, there's a lot of different perspectives involved, but why are people upset about the ethics review process itself? I think the main reason they, a lot of people are upset is because of the transparency. First, they took down all the videos. They didn't announce it. They didn't explain until there was this questioning of why this happened, right? And then once they found out, oh, there's this review going on, well, what are the guidelines? What are you reviewing? What are some of the rules, I guess, of like who decides what is problematic, what's not, and then what to do with that? Of course, there's a group of people, a diverse group, but uh, the museum is not revealing who 
for privacy reasons, of course. But I think this just this, I guess, lack of, of transparency. They were initially concerned about this. Yeah. One of the arguments you wrote about in support of the collections was about disability representation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I've heard it several times that because this museum displays bodies and body parts that are not usual, because, you know, you know, it started with this collection from Thomas Mutter, who, who was one of the first plastic surgeons and removed a lot of unusual anatomy. So there's a lot of things on display that talk to the disability community. And I've heard that people who are disabled have visited the museum and they see themselves represented there. And that's something that, you know, either on the media or other museums, they never see themselves represented. But I've also heard from the director that she knows that another section of the disability community, they don't like it. They think that their bodies or, or people like them shouldn't be on display as, as a museum, right? So I think these are two sides, and, and I'm sure there's many sides in between, but there's definitely a, a very passionate group of, of people with disabilities that are glad that these examples of, of the human body are on display because they exist, and that is a way of have this being evident and on the forefront. And I think we go back again with how things are contextualized and explained in the museum, right, for people to understand this and why it's there. Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense of how far along they are in this whole process? It must be just a huge endeavor. It's going to take at least 48 months to complete. Oh, wow. Yes. To complete the audit of the entire collection. And in that time, and I think there's been confusion about it, you know, because people are are quickly jumping into like, oh, they're going to take the display out or, or they're going to remove things. And no, that's not the case. All these things started with the online content and the videos, and it's been getting back up. But as long as the audit is not completed, nothing on the dis- on display is going to change. Nothing is going to be removed. And of course, there's clear things on display that people have criticized. For example, there's the, the case of the soap lady, a woman who was buried a long time ago. And because of the process of the soul that she was in, she was covered later with uh, this thing called corpse wax or adiposiri, which is this fatty substance that forms in, in warm, alkaline, and airless environments. For some reason, they were, I think, relocating a church and the cemetery where she was buried. And then this researcher, physician, anatomist, Joseph Lady in 1875, uh, became aware of this uh, body. And he lied to the grave digger, saying that she was his grandmother, which was not true and then obtained the, this body and then later donated to the meter. So they know this body was stolen or taken without consent, and yet she's displayed there. So yeah, no, you know, Kate Quinn told me, yes, I personally believe that she should be buried again, but we don't have any ID uh, of her or, or way to contact family members or descendants. So it's going to be up for the board to decide whether there's a strong medical reason or, or educational reason to keep her body on display or not. And then if, if it's not on display, then what, what do you do? What they're working on right now, and I think that's a priority, is to return the bodies or the remains they have of, of Native Americans. 
which by law should be returned. So far, they have returned two, I believe, but still they have more than 50. And that's a priority. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like there is a lot to evaluate and there's a lot of things that are uh, like clearly not right and clear things that are in that, that gray zone. And I think this is important because, of course, this is a museum in Philadelphia. It's very dear to the locals and tourists as well. But it's also uh, an example of what could or should be done at other museums, right? There's no blueprint on how to do these reviews. A lot of other museums are struggling and coming up with guidelines on, on, on what to do. And every museum is different. Every collection is different. So there needs to be a lot of discussions and decisions that might not place everyone, but I I think in the long term are decisions that are taking into account uh, researchers' perspective, the community perspective, and most important, you know, having that respect for for people that might not have agreed to be in the museums. So there's a lot of discussions going around, and I think especially from researchers and the public. There's uh, this awareness now and demand for accountability in museums and other institutions. Yeah, absolutely. How does the Mütter compare with some of the inward looking and evaluation that other museums are doing around the world? One of the, the things that I realize is that every museum is different. A lot of these collections are now no longer accessible for researchers unless there's a clear ethical reason an ethical review of, of what they intend to do. And, uh, and they are also figuring out what to do in terms of repatriation or return of these human remains. The Mütter, uh, for example, did return a skull that belonged to a, an Australian soldier when the Australian Navy requested it. And that was a case where somebody requested it, right? But it came from the descendants, not the museum itself. So I think... There, there needs to be work there, and other museums are also working on that, on reviewing what they have and try to contact these descendant communities. But it's uh, a case-by-case basis. There are organizations and associations that are actively working on coming up with, with guidelines. Two of my sources are part of a task force a task force on legacy collection at the American Association for Anatomy. And they are working on guidelines for other museums that can be flexible enough to adapt them for each museum on what to do with not only new collections, but very old collections that were inherited. And by, by today's ethical standard, it's not the best to have them on display or even accessible for research. Thanks, Rodrigo. Rodrigo Perez Ortega is a staff reporter at Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Huge thanks to the Dope Labs team for working with us on the Catoctin Furnace story. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? 
wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.